Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and thanks for joining us today. Now, normally on this podcast, I would introduce a topic, a guest expert, and our CEO, Eva Velasquez. This month, though, we're doing something a little different. This week, the ITRC published our Consumer Impact Report that's based on information gathered from victims of identity crimes and how those events have affected them both financially, but more importantly, non-financially. Eva presented the findings from this year's study in a webinar which, through the miracles of technology, we're going to replay the audio of that webinar for you as this week's podcast. Our first consumer impact report was published back in 2006, and we ask more than just the standard questions. How much time did you spend and how much money did you lose? Now, those are important questions, and we do ask them, but we don't stop there because those questions by themselves don't paint the full picture of what victimization truly looks and feels like. We go much deeper and we ask about the emotional, the behavioral, the physical impacts, and and even the lost opportunity costs, which are often really hard to measure. Each year, we try to deepen our understanding by looking at additional facets of identity crimes. Last year, we looked at the impacts created by the pandemic, and this year, for the first time, we did a comparison with victims that contacted the ITRC for assistance versus victims that did not. And while we're saying that overall identity crime victims were less impacted compared to previous years, those were incremental shifts. They were not big swings, but where the impacts did increase, those were big swings. And as we look at the comparison between the ITRC victims and the general population, keep in mind that the the victims who contact the ITRC usually have more complex identity misuse cases, which take longer to resolve. They may have a persistent thief. um, Maybe their identity is being misused across multiple industries and platforms. Um, Or they may have a case where they've followed the resolution process correctly, but for whatever reason, it's it's just not working the way it's supposed to. Sometimes they're unable to even start their recovery process because they can't obtain a police report in their jurisdiction. And yes, even with the many state laws that entitle them to that report, that's still happening. The FTC made their identity theft affidavit available to the public, but unfortunately, not all organizations will accept that affidavit in lieu of a police report. So this is a challenge that still exists, and we we still hear from folks who are um, grappling with it on a, on a regular basis. Also new to this year's report, we conducted a SNAP survey of victims that had their social media accounts taken over. We're able to identify emerging issues because we talk to victims every single day. I I suspect that there's a number of folks listening who've maybe seen an odd message or an odd post from someone in their social network, and they assumed, boy, it looks that doesn't look like them. Their account must have been taken over. But since we had thousands of people contacting us needing help with social media account takeover, we knew that we needed to dig deeper. And the impact to these individuals, it, it was really eye-opening. You can drill down into the demographics and the full report, 
But to me, the big takeaway from all of this data is that really everyone is vulnerable. Victimization is not all about your age or ethnicity, your income level or your zip code. It's really more about how you interact and engage with the outside world, particularly the digital world, and your level of familiarity with these types of interactions. Okay, let's get into the meat of the report. Let's start with the re-victimization rate of ITRC victims. In a year-over-year -year comparison, we did see a slight drop in the re-victimization rate uh, from 29% last year to 26% this year. Uh, first, this is still incredibly high. Um, but also, we don't know if this will be sustained. It's really too early to tell. We'll have to look next year and see if we continue to see a, a downward trend or if this is more just ebb and flow. But the bottom line here is a quarter to a third of victims are consistently reporting to us that they've been a previous victim, and that's still staggeringly high. But wait, it gets worse for the folks that didn't talk to us. Here's the comparison between the ITRC victims and the, and the general population. Of the over 1,300 people that we surveyed for the general population data, 41% reported being the victim of an identity crime. And of those, half told us they had previously been a victim. There are a couple things to unpack here. First, I'm aware of only one other crime type with re-victimization rates that are on par with this, and that's intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And the, the rates vary depending on which studies you're looking at, but they usually take into account not just physical violence, but also psychological violence. And we've made incredible strides in changing the national conversation around psychological abuse and recognizing how harmful and traumatizing this is in this scenario, but we have a long way to go in acknowledging the trauma for other nonviolent crime types like identity crimes. And when you add to that, that this is the reoccurring trauma that comes from being victimized over and over, that it just makes me realize how much work we have left to do. And second, the rate of re-victimization for the general population is almost double that of the victims that contacted us previous, previously. And in my opinion, I think ITRC intervention plays a role here. Victims that contact us receive that comprehensive and very personalized recovery service, but they also receive risk minimization education at the same time. And this makes them better equipped to protect themselves moving forward. The general population, they may have had less complex cases, so they didn't need to seek out that, that outside assistance to resolve it. But they also most likely didn't receive the risk minimization education. So they don't have that elevated level of awareness on how to protect themselves in the future. We know based on our decades of experience that victimization is unique to the individual and it, it doesn't always follow a prescribed path. So resolution times are, are wildly inconsistent. The complexity of the case, the persistence of the thief, uh, the, the availability of resources at the agency or organization where the misuse occurred, all of these contribute to longer resolution times. Last year, one of our key findings was the increase in unresolved cases from the previous year. And we thought, and, and it was reasonable for us to assume 
that the ongoing pandemic and, and all of the challenges associated with that were influencing this increase. Uh, but this doesn't appear to be the case. It wasn't an anomaly. This is a trend. And that's evidenced by the 18% increase in unresolved cases since our last report. We're really moving in the wrong direction here with complex cases taking even longer to be resolved since more than half of the ITRC victims reported that their cases weren't resolved by the time they took this survey. Let's talk about the financial impact. While most victims reported losing less than $500, let's, let's put this in context. The impact of a $500 or less dollar loss really depends on your financial resources. For some people, losing a couple of hundred dollars can have uh, no impact on their finances, or they may have to scale back on, you know, entertainment or eating out or or putting money in their savings. It's a it's a painful lesson to learn, but it's not going to have any long term effects. But for others, it can result in being unable to meet your basic needs, like paying your rent or your electric bill or buying food. So I always advise folks when they're looking at these numbers to be careful and not dismiss a, a $500 or less loss as trivial. It really depends on the individual circumstances and financial situation of the victim. I also want to highlight the significant growth in the losses greater than $10,000 for ITRC victims. Uh, we went from 9% last year to 30% this year. And it's our opinion that one of the contributing factors to this growth is the number of social media account takeover cases that we handled that had revenue or earnings losses. And we are going to dig into that in just a few minutes. So as a result of those dollar losses, what kind of financial related problems are created? What actually happens in a victim's life? For our victims, 36% reported that they did not experience any financial related problems, but the overwhelming majority did in some manner. Specifically, things like not being able to pay bills, not being able to get new lines of credit, not being able to find housing. Think about the path that this puts some people on, that, that inability to pay for housing, uh, that inability to get a car loan or even pay for a car repair. This is going to impact other facets of their life. Um, will it impact their employment? And, and if so, what are the results from that? What happens then? I always visualize this domino effect. And once that first domino tips, they just continue to keep falling. Now, last thing on the financial impacts, we asked both populations if they had trouble covering the cost of a need. And overwhelmingly, the majority of both populations said yes, 55% of ITRC victims and 57% of the general population. And we then asked them how they met that need. Only a small percentage of folks went to a traditional financial institution and a third simply went without. But the rest relied on their social networks and, or social programs. And I think these responses illustrate more than anything else how this crime affects more than just the one person, just the individual victim. It, it impacts and affects everyone in their sphere, their friends, their family, their coworkers, their communities. It definitely impacts our social service programs when folks are left with no other choice but to go to the government for assistance. It, it's impacting our entire economy. 
think about the extended family member the, the, or the coworker or the neighbor that loans money to an identity crime victim so they can meet their basic needs or get back on their feet. Those dollars are now removed from the economy for a period of time. They aren't going into the local economy, the neighborhood restaurant, the school fundraisers, all of those different things. So even if altruism isn't a motivator, maybe the economic impacts will motivate us as a society to strongly consider investing in more things like consumer education and recovery resources for victims. Now, half of the ITRC victims reported additional non-financial problems. Uh, look, losing out on an employment opportunity is a, is a huge deal. And even the lost time at work can create longer term challenges, depending on your line of work. And even spending time away from your family, that's time you're not going to get back. A, a couple of years ago, um, one of the victims that we worked with extensively was telling me about her experience during the holiday season. She and her husband, they had four small children and a very persistent thief who was habitually changing their mailing address at the post office. She had to physically go to the post office about a dozen times at least to keep changing it back to her legitimate address. And that's in addition at the same time that she's working through the recovery process, trying to prove that she didn't open these, these numerous retail uh, credit card accounts and other types of credit accounts. And she just felt like from Thanksgiving to New Year's Day, she and her husband were so consumed with resolving these issues that they just weren't present for their, their kids and their family. Uh, and while this does sound like a small thing, it it's time that she's never going to get back. And it was just one more thing on top of everything else that these victims are experiencing. All right, we just did a deep dive into the financial impacts, but that's not the whole picture, as I said before. There are emotional consequences as well. And these are not small numbers or outliers. Identity crime victimization is traumatic for most victims. It's the minority of victims that don't experience any negative feelings or emotions. And that minority is shrinking year over year. Now, these are the ITRC victims. And it does make sense that with a cohort of victims who have complex cases, those the numbers are going to be higher. But those feelings did certainly exist in the general population. So how does this trauma present itself? What are these negative emotions? ITRC victims tended to present uh, higher numbers in all categories. Again, makes sense. More complex case, the longer one has to deal with it. It's going to lead to victims experiencing a wider array uh, of these negative feelings and in greater numbers. But there were still high response rates for feeling uh, anxious, violated, vulnerable uh, within the general population. And the feelings of guilt or shame or embarrassment, they were notably higher among the victims that we assisted, but not non-existent in the general population. And this tells me that we need to continue our work in removing the stigma of victimization. We have so much work to do in how we talk to and how we talk about victims of these crimes. Just, just look at the media headlines. Uh, senior citizen duped out of life savings. Gen Zers fall for scams when they fall in love online. 
the way we talk about the victim experience using language such as duped and falls for it's contributing to this shame embarrassment and guilt and i even hear it among experts and people i respect and that i know care about this issue it's just you know saying things like well you know how did they not see this so why did the person click on that link everybody knows you're not supposed to click on links and emails you weren't expecting well no everybody clearly doesn't know and with the level of sophistication of some of these phishing and, and smishing scams i think it's unreasonable to expect people to be perfect and i think it's unconscionable for us to shame them because they weren't perfect and yes it counts even if you don't do it to their face because how we think affects how we act and the last response 10 percent of itrc victims felt suicidal and three percent of the general population last year was the first time in the history of this survey that we reached that 10 percent response rate to that question and i i believe that perhaps the piling on of all the other external stressors like the pandemic was causing this increase but now this appears to be a trend and i just ask people to consider that if this experience is so devastating that 10 percent of people thought ending their life was an option we are definitely not doing enough to remove the shame and the embarrassment and and promote recovery and help make the recovery process easier. And if this response doesn't demonstrate to outsiders, people outside of this space, how impactful this form of victimization is, I honestly don't know what will. Now, in addition to the emotional impacts, there are physical ones too. Think about, uh, I think about, you know, how my own body reacts when I'm under stress or I'm worried or anxious for whatever reason. Our bodies and minds, they're not independent systems, and what affects one affects the other. And the percentage of folks that reported physical problems, it was pretty even between the ITRC victims and the general population, with the majority of victims responding yes. Look beyond the individual person experiencing these physical problems and think about how this is going to impact all of the other folks that they're going to encounter sleep deprived, stressed out people with headaches really aren't the best employees. They're not the best spouses. They're not the best parents. And don't get me wrong here. I am not blaming these folks. I am not at all saying that they should, they should toughen up or not be experiencing these things. We are all human and our bodies react to emotional stress. I can relate to having something on my mind that distracts me from um, doing what I wanna be doing or being my best self. But also remember that demographic slide from earlier, this crime is affecting everyone. It's impacting the people you're encountering on a daily basis. It's potentially affecting uh, your doctor, your uh, accountant, the person who's serving you coffee or lunch, your hairdresser, no one is immune. So chances are that during your normal routine this week, you're going to encounter someone experiencing the emotional or physical impacts of an identity crime. Now the SNAP survey of victims of social media account takeover. Um, over the last 18, 20 months or so, we've had thousands of people reach out to a, our contact center for assistance on this issue. And at first blush, you might view this as something trivial or inconsequential. 
it's it's easy to be dismissive and think, well, I'm sorry you were denied an avenue of entertainment and you don't get to look at funny cat pictures. But uh, we were listening to distraught victims and we realized that this there was so much more to it than that. Um, but it's been challenging to convince others that that's the case. And now we have the data to prove it. So the two key takeaways here, nearly half, 48%, believed that they were interacting with someone in their social network. I think that makes it much harder to victim shame and blame. You know, why did you click on that link? Why did you engage? Uh, because I thought it was someone I knew. It was someone in my network asking me for help or to donate to a charity or telling me about a cool opportunity they had a personal experience with. And the other key takeaway here, lost sales revenue. Now, this is clearly not just a, a, an inconvenience anymore. More than a quarter of victims surveyed stated the takeover resulted in lost sales revenue. These accounts are sometimes secondary or even primary income generators for folks, and not just for influencers, but also for some solopreneurs and, and small businesses that use social media accounts as their primary advertising platform. When you, when you take what I just said into account, it's not surprising that the majority of these victims also reported strong emotional reactions, similar to those of victims of what we consider more traditional identity misuse crimes. This makes sense when you see that their earnings are tied to the account, but even for the folks who were not generating income from their accounts, they still reported feeling violated, vulnerable, anxious, and even suicidal. This tracks when you consider that the majority of victims, they see the criminal continuing to post as them on the account. They see the criminal reaching out to their friends or followers. And this is continuing to happen while they know that they are very likely never going to be able to stop them because they've been permanently locked out of that account. So some of these victims have told us that knowing their account is being used to potentially harm their friends and followers made them feel so guilty. Some were less concerned about their own losses and challenges and more concerned about how their friends and family might be exploited. The last thing we do in the survey every year is ask folks if their victimization caused them to change their habits in order to minimize their future risk. And the overwhelming majority of both populations reported doing some things differently post-victimization. There's a couple of things I want to call out here, and the full list of actions are included in the report. The, the first is the security, uh, I'm sorry, the security or credit freeze and the IRS IP pin, that's the identity protection pin. They have much higher adoption rates with ITRC victims. Again, I think the risk minimization education in tandem with the recovery service is influencing these higher adoption rates. And second, both of these tools are free. So that's not the barrier for people. We need to continue our education mission, uh, particularly for victims of less complex cases that aren't necessarily contacting a third party for resolution assistance. And I just feel that getting the word out about free risk minimization tools should be high on everyone's priority list. And with that, those are our key takeaways and we can open it up to 
questions. I do see that there's one in the hopper there. Tim, do we have any questions? Absolutely. I got a couple questions here. Let's uh, let's start it off with they're shocked that so many people are losing revenue from social media. So what should those social media platforms do to stop them? I'm going to comment not on the technology piece of it, but I will say that the social media platforms definitely need to have more services available for people reporting that their account's been taken over. These folks, they put in their complaint online and they never know if it's been received. They can't actually speak to a person. And so it goes into this void and they don't even know what the progress is. They they reach out to us wanting to know how they can ensure that someone is working on the issue, if it's been received, what kind of timeline they can expect for resolution, and there are no resources for them. So I feel like the first step that these companies need to take is by putting some resources into their their fraud investigations and into the customer service um, aspects of care for these victims so that people can actually talk to someone, know that their case is being worked on, know that it's been received, and, and hopefully um, realize or understand when this is going to be resolved and they will be able to get their account back. I know we're here almost at time, but I've got one more question for you. Um, it says here, as a national nonprofit with free services for victims, how are you funded? Well, we are primarily funded by the Department of Justice Office of Victims of Crime, but we also do a lot of projects with uh, industry. We have sponsorships, uh, corporate sponsorships, and uh, corporate foundations, um, a lot of the corporate social responsibility and philanthropic arms will uh, either provide us with donations to keep meeting our core mission or we'll do special projects. We also have data that we sell. We have our data breach data. Now I wanna make it very clear. I'm not talking about PII or data that belongs to people. These are the attributes of the data breaches in the US. We have our, our data breach report that we publish annually. And so we have subscriptions for organizations that wanna use that data for things like um, tracking trends and risk modeling and things of that nature. So if you want to get involved, oh, asker of the question, uh, by all means, please, please reach out. I'd love to have that conversation with you. You can download a copy of the ITRC's Consumer Impact Report at our website, idtheftcenter.org forward slash publications. If you think you've been the victim of an identity crime or you want to avoid becoming a victim, you can speak with an ITRC expert advisor on the phone, you can chat live on the web, or send us an email during our normal business hours. Just visit us at our new website, idtheftcenter.org, to get started. Be sure to join us next week for our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown. Until then, thanks for listening.